Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. The word of God speaks to us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That foods offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, Chicken soup for your soul today, right? Uh, If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, It's so good to have you with us this morning. Um, Hey, seriously, today's heavy. This is like uh, the antithesis of Caleb. This is neither going to be positive nor encouraging, uh, but it is biblical, and we do have to wrestle with it. Uh, if, if you're new to Frontline, what we love to do is we love to take books of the Bible and slowly work our way through these books because there are just certain texts in Scripture that I would not choose to preach. This is one of them, that it wouldn't like make my top 100 list of, man, I cannot wait to preach this text. And yet it is a word from the Apostle Paul. And really it's a word from our Father in heaven that we desperately need to hear. So we got to sit in it. We got to wrestle with it. If you're here with us and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're just unsure of 
all of this, church and Christianity and the whole nine yards, man, we are honored by your presence. We love that you're with us. We would just want to say to you, like, hey, come in and be well. Come in and listen. Ask good questions. Uh, as you do life with us and you notice some discrepancies between our profession as followers of Jesus and the way that we live, we want to offer you to speak into us. You can point that out. And uh, we would love to just be with you and have you around. So thanks for being here today. Uh, today is going to feel a little bit like sitting in a seminary course taught by the Apostle Paul, where he goes through obscure stories of Jesus killing people. You ready? Okay, let's do it. Let's jump in. Some of you are like, oh, why did we pick today? Like, I lost an hour of sleep to hear this. Yeah, yeah, you did. Ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of this book. Thank you that there's things in here that shape us and form us. And today, as I've been praying all week for today, my prayer is the same. It's that those in the room with a really sensitive conscience would hear the assurance of their Father in heaven. Those who <clears throat> wrestle with doubting whether or not they really are Christians, who wrestle over and over and just don't feel assured. Today, God, we pray that you would assure them that they would feel your love and your affection and Thank you that it's not our hold on you, it's, it's your hold on us. Today we pray that that would be felt. But then I also pray for my friends in the room that need the warning. And we pray that the warning would sit heavy and that we wouldn't miss it, we wouldn't avoid it. And I don't know which is which. I know that I need this word today. And so I pray that you would shape us and meet us and help us. And we pray that the loudest voice would not be my voice today. It wouldn't even be uh, the words that we're reading, but it would be your voice today. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, so have you ever like bought a product and then carefully read through the warning labels on the product that you bought? No, no one does this, right? I've never met a person who actually reads the warning labels on whatever they buy. They just go straight to the instructions on how to use the product, right? Uh, I, I found a, a blog that took real warning labels. These are actual warning labels and they carefully read through them and just brought out some of the really strange, bizarre ones and put them on photos. So I want to show you some of these. Here's the first one. On a wheelbarrow, not intended for highway use. Just in case you're curious, that's actually listed in the warning label on the wheelbarrow. Here's another one. Uh, remove child before folding. Any parents make this mistake? Don't raise your hands, right? That's happened. That's why that's a warning label. So the idiot parent folded their child up and then sued the company for it. This one, once used rectally, the thermometer should not be used orally. You make that mistake one time, and then you're like, yeah, put that in the warning label. That was a mistake. Here's, here's another one. <laughs> this product not intended for use as a dental drill. That's really there. I don't understand it, but that's real. And then this one, finally, drivers do not carry burritos, all right? Please stop harassing Chipotle drivers. They have no burritos in their truck. What do they have in there if they don't have burritos, right? By the way, Qdoba would never need to put a warning on there like that because no one wants to eat at Qdoba anyway, right? I have a lot of food opinions, if you've not noticed. I like to pick fights with you about food. All right, enough of that. So I wanted you to at least have a few moments of laughter before we get into the heavy stuff. Here, here, here's, here's why I bring that up. The reason I bring that up is because like these warning labels, there's actually some strong warnings in Scripture and the same tendency that you and I have to just fly over those warnings in the product stuff that we buy, we have the same tendency to not carefully read some of these warning passages in Scripture. 
Or we read them and we laugh at them, or we read them or we think they don't apply to us, or we avoid them altogether. And today, what I want you to realize is that 1 Corinthians is filled with some strong warnings. Let me just give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15, the Apostle Paul essentially says, be careful how you build in the church or your labor will go up in flames. In 1 Corinthians 3, 17, he says, if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. And 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, he says, hand that sexually immoral man in the church over to Satan. If you don't, then the whole church is going to be affected and infected. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he says, people who repeatedly engage in sexual immorality or adultery or idolatry or greed or drunkenness won't inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 7 through 13, he says, eating idol food in a pagan temple could destroy the faith of someone for whom Christ died. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30, he says, if you participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you will face judgment, which is why Paul says, that's why so many in Corinth are sick and some have even died. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. There's some warnings in this book, if you haven't noticed, that are sort of bombs that get dropped that we have to deal with. And the most abrupt, the most jarring, the most intense and explicit warning that we have is actually the one that we have in chapter 10 today. It's long, it's incredibly hard to hear, but it's something that you and I need to wrestle with. Now, let let me pause for a minute and let's set up the context so that you understand where we're at. If you're just parachuting in with us today, or maybe like me, you forget easily what we talked about last week, let me just kind of remind you of where we left off. So in chapter nine, we left off where Paul is gonna use this profound metaphor for the Christian journey that I I wonder how often gets into our our vision of the Christian journey, the Christian life. Here's what he says in chapter nine, verse 24, where we left off. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. There was like Olympic-style games that were incredibly popular in Corinth at the time. People would run to literally get wreaths that they would wear on their heads. And Paul is using this as a metaphor for our Christian journey. He's saying it requires discipline. It requires endurance. It requires hard work, intentionality, effort. He goes on to say this. He says, so I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. And here's why lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Christian journey, Paul is gonna tell us, is less like plopping into the lazy river and floating along till either you die and go to be with Jesus in heaven or he returns to this earth. That is not how Paul's describing the Christian journey. He's saying it's way less like the lazy river and it's way more like signing up to run a marathon. It's going to be grueling, hard effort. Not everybody is going to finish. Some people are going to quit. Some people are not going to make it to the finish line. It requires discipline. And Paul himself is saying that the Christian journey is is so intense that he's actually trying to get his body, to, to beat his body into submission so that after preaching, he himself 
doesn't get disqualified, which should beg the question, if the Apostle Paul is worried about getting disqualified, shouldn't you and I also be worried about potentially getting disqualified? If the Apostle Paul himself, who is far godlier, far more brilliant, far more committed and devoted to Jesus than I am, was worried that he might disqualify his own faith, shouldn't you and I also be worried that we may sign up to run the race and then quit and bail? That's what we're looking at today. Now, what Paul is going to do is he's going to address three specific issues that the Corinthians were struggling with. This has been the MO of the letter. He's addressing them on the issues that they struggle with. But the three specific issues that he's addressing today are fascinating because they hit so close to home. Let me give you the three that Paul is going to mention, three things that could cause them to disqualify themselves from the race and their Christian journey. The first is a false sense of spiritual security. A false sense of spiritual security. The Corinthians had a bit of like a a magical view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They, They thought, well, I mean, I've been baptized and I take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, so I'm good. Like Jesus has saved me we're good. There's, there's nothing else that needs to really be said or done. At this point, it doesn't matter if there's a gap between my profession and my obedience because I've been baptized. I, I take communion. Like, I'm a Christian. I'm fine. So therefore, I can live and do as I please. Jesus doesn't really care. This was the thought that they had that Paul wants to address, a false sense of spiritual security. In addition to that, there was also a justification of idolatry a justification of idolatry. Now, if you remember, these were uh, former pagans. that They were going to pagan temples, uh, sacrificing and worshiping pagan gods, and Jesus had saved them out of their pagan lifestyle. But somewhere along the way, they started to drift back into their paganism. Corinth was littered with foreign temples and idols uh, in those temples, and it was very common, very popular to go to these temples and eat feasts and banquets and hold parties and celebrate a child's birthday or whatever at a temple, eating food sacrifice to this God, and the Corinthians started to slip back into that way of life, and here was their big excuse. They justified it by saying, well, there's only one real God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. There's only one real God, and we know that these idols are not real gods. They're just carved images out of stone or metal or whatever, So we can go eat at these temples, we can sacrifice uh, to these gods, we can participate in all the pagan rituals inside of these temples, and it's not a big deal because in our heart, we're not really worshiping these gods. We worship the one true God, right? They had a justification of idolatry. And then the third thing was a drift towards sexual immorality. And this is implicit in pagan worship, but every single temple in Corinth that was to the worship of foreign gods also would have male prostitutes and female prostitutes. It was just very common and very popular for uh, sex acts to be done as you're feasting in the worship of the gods. So friends, we miss this often when we hear the letter, but remember, Paul's not just dealing with people that are going to pagan temples and eating food sacrificed to pagan gods. They're also drifting back into sexual immorality and engaging in sex acts with temple prostitutes inside of the temples, and that's what Paul is dealing with. Three issues, a false sense of spiritual security, justification of idolatry, and a drift towards sexual immorality. Unlike all of the stuff we struggle with today. Just kidding, right? It's like clearly this is the same stuff that you and I struggle with, a false sense of spiritual security. Man, I've been saved. I've been baptized. I went to Falls Creek. 
For, for heaven's sakes, I like made a decision 47 times. I prayed the prayer. I'm good. You don't have to worry about me. I know where I would go when I die. I'm good. I'm safe. I'm fine. Who cares that there's a massive chasm between my profession and my obedience? Jesus will overlook that. A false sense of spiritual security. A justification of idolatry. Oh, I mean, we love God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, but there's also certain things that we can't stand to live without or things that we must have at all cost, things that we would sacrifice for. So even in our own Western idolatry, we're often struggling between the worship of God and the worship of fill-in-the-blank that's going to bring us the, the, the happiness and the joy that we think we need. And then this idea of a drift towards sexual immorality. I mean, the normalization of porn has made it to where even in the church, it's just normal. It's expected that you look at porn. It's not a big deal. We're just gonna engage in this. It's not hurting anybody. This is a private thing between me and myself, and and I can do this, and it's just fine. These are the same issues that 2,000 years later, the church of Jesus in the West is still struggling with the same things that Corinth was struggling with. And here's what we often say. It's no big deal. God is fine with it. I can continue to live how I want. Well, Paul is going to change the argument today because up till this point, Paul's argument has gone something like this. Hey, friends, you're not loving your uh, brothers and sisters, so you need to lay down your rights in order to be loving to your brothers and sisters. That's been his argument. Today, Paul flips it, and he's going to say something like this. Hey, you're not being loving towards God. You need to lay down your sin in order to be loving towards God. So he's shifting the argument. So with that in mind, three things that I want you to see out of our text today. The first one is this. Beware of relying on past spiritual experiences. Beware of relying on past spiritual experiences. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... We're all under the cloud. Let's just pause there. I love that he says, our fathers. Like he's talking to a primarily Gentile, non-Jewish church. And yet he's saying, you're so connected to the faith now. You're brought in that even the Jewish heritage is our heritage. Abraham is our father. Like we are the true Israel as the church of Jesus Christ. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the seas, talking about the Red Sea and the people of Israel getting saved out of Egypt, and all were, listen to this, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is brilliant. What Paul is saying is that Israel, like the Corinthians, had also experienced a type of baptism. You know, we celebrate baptism. We're gonna do that next week. He's saying Israel had their own version of a baptism. Now think about the bizarre, incredible similarities between our story as Christians today, the Corinthian stories, and the stories of Old Testament Israel getting saved out of Egypt. If you were to say, who are you? What's your story? They would have said something like this. Well, I was rescued out of a life of slavery by the blood of the lamb. Then we journeyed through the waters of God's judgment, and we were safely brought on the other side to experience new life in him. And now we've been given a new identity as the people of God. Our old life is behind us. It's buried in the waters along with our enemies. They're buried in the waters of God's judgment. We've been delivered. We're no longer slaves. That's exactly what a Christian would say, isn't it? And what Paul is trying to say is that they experienced a type of baptism, 
right? And, and he goes on about this cloud, which if you remember the story in Exodus, the cloud was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that represented the very presence of God, the spirit of God dwelling with them, immersing the people of God. So what Paul is saying is these, these guys were baptized and they were immersed in the spirit of God. The same phrase that he's gonna use in chapter 12 about Christians being baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. How fascinating then that he's saying, hey, Corinthians, your story is not unique to you. There's another group of people in the Old Testament that have a really similar story. They were baptized too. Now he's going to go on, look at verse three. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. He's saying Israel had a type of baptism and now he's going to say Israel also had a type of the Lord's Supper what we celebrate every Sunday here at Frontline Church, the Lord's Supper. He's saying, for them it was different because it was manna from heaven. We read about that in Exodus 16. And then it was heavenly liquid. It was water from a rock. And we read about that in Exodus 17. And Paul's whole point is that that rock was actually symbolic or it's like Christ was present there in some interesting, bizarre, beautiful ways. And if that sounds weird to you, as it does to me, Deuteronomy 32 is is called the Song of Moses. And the Song of Moses is like a summary of the entire Old Testament or the, the law, the Torah. And in that, Deuteronomy 32 verse four, notice what it says about God. It says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is crazy. In summary, here's what Paul is saying. Andrew Wilson summarizes it. He says, Israel, like the Corinthians, had a redemption story, an Exodus journey, the experience of the Spirit in their midst, an equivalence of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. They were just like us. So Paul's setting up his argument. They're just like us. And did you notice how many times in the first few verses Paul said the word all? All of them were delivered. All of them were rescued. All of them passed through the waters. All of them ate the food. All of them drank the drink. All, all, all. And with that in mind, look at what he goes on to say in verse five. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Or a more literal translation is, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Here's Paul's point. Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, I want you to pause and take note of your behavior for a minute because if you were to go through the Old Testament stories, you're gonna find bodies littered in the wilderness and these are people who experienced a type of salvation. They experienced a type of rescue, a type of deliverance. They were baptized like you. They were taking the Lord's Supper like you, although it was different. They experienced the spiritual blessings and experiences and all of them experienced the same stuff. But nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Okay, so if Paul were writing to us, he would be saying this. Okay, so you grew up in church. You prayed a prayer. You walked an aisle. You got baptized. You filled out a card. You made a decision. You take communion every Sunday. You, if somebody knocks on your door and asks you the very scary question, hey, if you were to, you know, why do we do that to people? Like, if you were to die today, I'm some random stranger asking about your eternal salvation. You know, if you were to answer that question, you would have all the right answers. So what? Paul's point is, so what? Be careful of relying on past spiritual experiences 
while having a life right now that's totally disconnected of the claims of Jesus on you. Paul's saying you need to be aware of that. These people had spiritual experiences that were powerful. They had blessings that were powerful. And most of them, God was not pleased. It's a big deal. Let's keep moving. Look at verse six. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's one of the themes here. This happened to them as an example so that we would not be like them and desiring evil. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul is now brilliantly uh, referencing two different Old Testament stories. One of them is really obscure. The other one is a little bit more well-known. The first one is in Exodus 32. And this is at the very beginning of Israel's wilderness journey. This is the very first big event after the people of Israel get rescued out of Egypt and safely cross over the Red Sea, what Paul calls after their baptism right? So this is the very first story. And what happens in Exodus 32 is that Moses goes up on the mountain, if you remember, and the people of Israel wait for a few days. And then after a few days, they're like, he must have died. Who knows where he's at? Who cares? Well, we need someone to lead us. So Aaron, why don't you make us a golden calf that we can call our God and we're going to worship that as God and we're going to bow down to it. And in Exodus 32, that's exactly what happens. It says the people sat down to eat. Do you notice what's happening here? They're sitting down in the presence of what? An idol eating what? Idol food sacrificed to the idol. This is why Paul's referencing the Corinthian behavior with this specific story. So they're sitting down, they're eating, and then this Hebrew euphemism, and they rose up to play. That's like, and they rose up to engage in sexual activity together. So they're eating idol food, and they're engaging in sexual immorality. And as a result, when Moses came down the mountain, 3,000 of them were killed with the sword and many others died from a plague. Then Paul references Numbers 25. And in Numbers 25, this is at the very end of their wilderness journey. So you've got a bookend, one at the beginning and one at the end. And at the end, the story's bizarre and it's awful, it's, it's terrible. You have the people of Israel engaging Moabite women and having sexual relationships with these Moabite women. And the Moabite women allow them or basically lead them into eventually sacrificing food and various things to the god Baal and then worshiping the god Baal. And so Moses is now addressing the people. And there's this scene, and it's terrifying, where Moses is addressing the whole people of Israel on their sexual immorality. And he's saying, you have got to stop. And while Moses is rebuking the people of Israel for doing this, a Hebrew man in the middle of the congregation stands up, grabs a Moabite woman, takes her to her tent, and starts to have sex with her in front of everybody. And as a result... Thousands and thousands of people died. 23,000 people died from a plague as a result of the judgment of God. And this leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is beware of thinking that Jesus is safe. Beware of thinking that Jesus is safe. Look at verse nine. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, both the Corinthians and ours today, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So let's ask the question, is Jesus safe? Is he? Well, he is, if by safe we mean that we can run to him and hide from the wrath that we so rightly deserve because of our sin. He is safe. He, he is safe if by safe we mean that he's good and he's full of love and, and he's compassionate and, and he'll take the worst of the worst and we can bring our full selves to him and instead of getting crushed, we get forgiven and adopted into his family. He is safe if that's what we mean, right? But if by safe we mean that he's flippant towards our sin, if by safe we mean that we can repeatedly put Christ to the test and he'll never do anything about it, then no, friends, he's not safe. In fact, Jesus is the one who was sending the destroyer. Jesus was the one, Paul says, who was sending the serpents to kill the people because of their disobedience. Now, this blows up our idea of Jesus as my homeboy, doesn't it? I, I grew up thinking that it was a friend in, in high school. I thought it was the coolest shirt at the time. It was, Jesus is my homeboy. And I kind of grew up with that attitude. In fact, if you were to press me on it, I don't know if I would have put it into these words, but I had the notion that the God of the Old Testament was God the Father, and he's the mean one. He's the one who freaks out. He's the one who, you know, flies off the handle and rah, in rage and wrath. And then thankfully, we have the New Testament where God the Son is featured, and God the Son is much nicer, much more compassionate. He walks around, he's full of love and grace, and he doesn't ever get angry about anything. That was the false dichotomy that I had, and Paul is blowing that up. And he's saying, actually, do you know who did the things in the Old Testament? It was Christ himself. They were putting Christ to the test. Remember, God the Father is love. God the Father is the one who, out of love for us, sent the Son. God the Father is the one who initiated our salvation. He's the one who dreamed it up. He's the one who had the idea of it in the first place. God the Son was the one who willingly came for us. But friends, this is crazy to think about. Jesus is the one who sent the destroyer. He's the one who sent the serpents. Paul is trying to get this to settle deep inside of your soul. Look at it again in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed. Let's keep moving. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all partaker of the one bread. Now, it feels a little bit as if Paul's going off on a tangent here about the Lord's Supper. That's not quite what's happening. Um, he is going to get into more specifics in chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper, but what's happening here is really fascinating. What Paul is trying to set up here is the reality that you and I are constantly being invited to feast at two different tables two different tables. And the table that he's talking about first 
is the table of the Lord, what we call the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper. It's something that we take every Sunday as a church where the body and is represented by this bread and the blood of Jesus is represented by the cup. And what's fascinating is that Paul is here, he's saying it's not a magical meal. It's not like you can come and approach this meal and not have faith in Jesus and it do anything for you. But here's the reality about this meal. When you do approach this meal with faith in Christ, when you do approach this meal as someone who is trusting in Jesus, what you're doing is, he says, you're participating in the body. You're participating in the blood. That word participation in Greek is koinonia. It literally means uh, fellowship or communion, which is why we call it communion. What Paul is saying is when you come to to church on Sundays and you feast in this meal, Jesus himself is setting a table before you and you're sitting down at his table and you're offering your heart to him. You're offering worship to him. You're, You're saying, I'm feasting on this bread. I'm drinking this cup because I want more of you in my life. I want to commune with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. That's what you're doing. Now, with that in mind, what he's going to go on to reference is this other thing that happened with the people of Israel and the Old Testament and the sacrifices. Look at this in verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? In other words, in the Old Testament, they would sit in the temple or the tabernacle. They would make sacrifices. And by making sacrifices and eating that sacrifice, they're participating in the worship of the one true God. They're sitting down at his table. They're experiencing his love and his grace. They're offering him their heart again, their devotion, their commitment. Now, with that in mind, Paul's now gonna talk about the other table that you and I are constantly being invited to sit at. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, let me pause here. What he's saying is he's critiquing their position. The Corinthians were only half right. They were saying, there's only one true God. And so when we eat this food in the temples and sacrifice to the gods, we know there's not really pagan gods. They're just statues. They're not real. Well, Paul's saying, you're 50% right. You're 50% wrong. It is true that there there is only one true God, and it is true that these idols are just statues, but it's not true that nothing is happening. Behind these statues are lower G gods, if you will, or spiritual forces of darkness or demons that are being worshiped. And what's happening is just like the Lord's Supper is you sitting down at the table and offering your love, your commitment, your devotion to the one true God, to Jesus. You're participating in that sacrifice. When you sit in the pagan temples and you're sitting down at the table, you're participating with the demonic powers behind the gods. You're sitting down at the table of demons. Now notice what he goes on to say in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The third thing I want you to see is beware of divided allegiances. Beware of divided allegiances. The Corinthians had this issue where on Sundays they came to church They took communion, and then on Mondays, they were at the pagan temples, and they were participating in the worship of demons. And it's different for us because we're not going to physical pagan temples, but friends, on Sundays, we come here and we feast on Jesus. We 
we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we remember what he did for us, we celebrate it. And then on Monday, we sit back down at the table of demons. We worship all kinds of other stuff. We live in ways that are incongruent. Our hearts are divided in their allegiance to Jesus. And Paul is essentially drawing a line in the sand in this text. Which table do you want to sit at? Is what he's saying. Which table? Because you cannot cannot participate in this table and then participate in a table that is against his very heart. It provokes his jealousy. Now for us, jealousy is like a a negative word. If you ever had a a relationship in the past that was marked by jealousy, it was terrible. We critique that, oh, they were really jealous. And that's kind of seen as like a a jab to their character. And in often our cases, it really is. It's messy. Our jealousy is often rooted in insecurity and weirdness. But God's jealousy is holy. It's different. It's sort of like this, but different. Like imagine my wife and I were celebrating 15 years of being married at the end of this month. And we've been faithful to one another. We have eyes and a heart for one another. We're trying our best to be committed and devoted to one another. I want to make her feel safe and loved and cared for and cherished. Like that's, that's my, before I want to do anything else outside of be faithful to Jesus, that's what I want to do. Imagine if my wife left me for another man, but the man that she left me with, she left me for is abusive and he's angry and he's explosive and he slaps her and he, he spits on her and he, he mistreats her. Like as a husband, my jealousy would be aroused because I know that what she would be doing would be hurting her and leading her to death, not to life. I know it'd be, it'd be horrible to watch. My jealousy would be aroused. Friends, God's jealousy works the same way, but it's even more holy. And what's so bizarre is he's jealous for us. He wants us. He wants our heart. He's, he's actually like experiencing our sin as not just idolatry, but adultery. And that's one of the biggest themes of the Old Testament is that our idolatry is akin to adultery. It's like being unfaithful to the one who has been faithful to us. He's jealous for us. So friends, Jesus wants your allegiance, not a divided heart, not most of it. He wants all of your life and your heart and your affections. And he is not gonna stop until he gets it. So friends, this is weighty. Beware of relying on past spiritual experiences. It doesn't matter that you prayed a prayer. It doesn't matter that you've been baptized. It doesn't matter that you were raised in church. It doesn't matter that you made a decision. None of those things ultimately matter. What matter is, are you alive to God today? And is there proof of your life, obedience in your life that proves that? Beware of relying on past spiritual experiences. Beware of thinking that Jesus is safe. Stop pretending as if he doesn't care about your sin. He does care about it, and he's the one who is sending the destroyer in the Old Testament. Stop pretending that Jesus is safe. And beware of divided allegiances. Man, this is so heavy. As I was preparing the sermon for this Sunday, I was just like, Golly, this is like, we pick this on Time Change Sunday. I don't know if that's good or bad, that, you know, less people will be here to hear this. This is hard. This is like a weighty, heavy word. Is there any encouragement here? Is there any hope here? The answer is yes. Yes, there is. Before we close, I want you to see it in verse 13. Here's the hope. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 
God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, I'm aware there's people in the room today and you're like, man, I'm on the Christian journey. I'm on the marathon. I'm in the boxing ring and it's hard and I'm getting beat up and I don't even know if I can finish. And then I hear a sermon like this. I don't know that there's hope for a guy like me. I don't know if there's hope for a person like me. Can I make it to the end? Can I be faithful? Friends, here's what you need to hear today. God is faithful. He's faithful. It's not your grip on him. It's his grip on you. It's his grip on you. And here's the thing about these warning passages that meet assurance passages. Both are real and both are true. And here's how it works. If someone truly isn't a follower of Jesus, but it's just pretending, they don't hear the warning passages. They fly right over their head. They stuff their ears. They push down any sense of conviction and call it condemnation instead. And they just ignore all the warning passages. But friends, if you're really alive to God, if you're a follower of Jesus, you hear these warning passages and it pricks you. It does something. You know, I don't want to be that. I want to be faithful. And that's actually the mechanism. That's the means by which God keeps you safe until the end. Paul wants you to know, hey, there's no temptation that you are facing right now that is beyond his ability to get you through. He's given you a way out. Take the way out. Take the way out. This is Paul calling out to you to take the way out. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these, the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What's the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. Friends, Paul is saying, there's a precipice down there. Don't go down there. Corinthians, there are three issues that you guys are continually engaging. Don't go down there. And like, likewise, church in Oklahoma City, church in Moore and Norman, hey, frontline church, there is a deep precipice. Don't go down there. Today, you get the chance to respond. There's a way out. Would you stand with me? I want to invite you to just close your eyes. And not think about other people, think about who needs to hear this. I want you to just think about yourself for a minute. I know this is really heavy and weighty. But today, I want you to do some healthy introspection. Where are you at with this? Have you been putting Christ to the test? Where do you need to repent today? Where do you need to come clean before his presence, ask for his grace? Maybe today you've been made aware of all the ways that you eat at the table of demons. You wouldn't say it that way. That's not the language that you would use, but but that's what it is. And today I want you to hear the invitation from your Father in heaven that there is a better table that's been prepared for you. It is the table that we can sit down at, not based on our own merit or obedience or awesomeness or track record, but it's the table that Jesus has set with his own body and his own blood in our place. Today, we get to commune with Jesus himself. We get to participate with him. 
we get to come and sit down at his table and feast with him. And today, maybe the thing that you need to just bring in your heart as you come and receive this meal is those three words, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And you're just banking your life on that. That's what I'm doing. I'm banking my life on the fact that God is faithful despite the fact that I'm so often not. Maybe you're here, and I just, I just want you to realize, like, some of you are not really Christians. You say you are. You, 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 if somebody asked you, you would say that you are. And you would point back to experiences that you've had in the past or things that you've done. But there is just a real disconnect in your life right now. There's not fruit of trusting Jesus. And that should that scare you a little bit? Yes, but also it should give you hope that Jesus is actually inviting you to himself. He's not trying to scare you away. He's trying to invite you to himself for real. So maybe today you become a Christian for the first time. That's my story. I pretended to be a Christian for years and years and years, and I really wasn't. Maybe today you're just like, yeah, that's me. For those that truly are and are just struggling with assurance today, will you look up here and remember the body of Jesus was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. He sees you today and he loves you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, we want to invite you to come and receive the bread, receive the cup today, participate, commune with Jesus today. You're invited. You can do this in groups and I'll let you do business with Jesus as you need to.